Alright. Hello everybody. Welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey and I am your host. Uh, years coming to an end, huh? Yeah, I, I understand it's purely a perceptual thing, sl- more than a little bit related to the tilt of the Earth's axis, but if you live where I do, which is to say, like, the Northern Hemisphere, things seem to accelerate towards the end of the year. I feel like it's different for the... I I have to talk to someone from, like, Australia, but I feel like because it's summer down there instead of winter up here, like, the end of their year kind of gets languid, whereas ours gets uh, compressed and almost, like, you know, sped up. But, I don't know, again, it's a perceptual thing, more than anything else. But, we're coming down to it, aren't we? We are coming down to it. So, if you could please like, comment, subscribe, star rating, written review, whatever else you can do to help the podcast, that's always appreciated. Sharing it around is another great thing. Um, on the agenda this evening, we, pre- we review UFC and ESPN Plus 91. That was this last Saturday, and... It happened. There's some good... Not slightly dismissive. It ended on kind of a weak note. For reasons. We'll get into that. But I'm not going to sit here and pretend this was the worst card I've seen all year. Because there were some individually good performances to be found around here. So we will get into that. And the last UFC event of 2023, this coming Saturday, UFC 296. Leon Edwards goes for his next title defense against Colby Covington. And a lot of other sad stuff. We'll get into my sadness related to that when we get to it, but that's on the agenda. Um, yeah, another year almost in the books. Um, I will do... What am I going to do my year in review? I'll save that for the end. I still have some scheduling stuff to hash out a little bit here, but we'll, we'll save it for then. Um, yeah, let's jump into it, shall we? I did all the preamble. But, yeah, here we go. So, last night, UFC on ESPN Plus 91. Main event. Song Yudong defeats Chris Gutierrez via unanimous decision. Two 50-45s and one 50-44. I do not understand the 50-44, to be candid. I don't know what round would have been 10-8. Um, it was a super generous 10. It was a super generous 10-8. Super generous. I gave Gutierrez the second. I gave Song every other round, so I'm not... The right guy won. Um... We got two and a half rounds or so of pretty de- of a decent fight. Not great, but decent. Um, then third round, Song gets a takedown and realizes, oh, Gutierrez is not great about wall walking and I can kind of be on top here and do some stuff. I think it's the fourth round that he sort of drops. It's either that or the third. I can't remember and frankly it doesn't matter. Um, that would have been the third. Would have been the third. Because fourth round, he gets a takedown and gets on top and just spends the whole round 
in Gutierrez's guard, just kind of doing enough to stop from being stood up. Fifth round, Gutierrez half tries an Imanari roll and then gets sat on, and that's how the last five minutes went. Um, not great. There was some fouling going on. Both guys got poked in the eye. Um, then Gutierrez... He's hand, at one point, he was trying to set up a triangle. And one of the ways you do that is you get wrist control on one side. You push that arm down, and then you pull the leg on the same side up and over the shoulder to set up, again, part of the triangle. And he's, I think he started out being fine with this. Like, he just got wrist control, and then his hand ran into the glove. But that's, it's okay if the glove is there as a point of leverage. What you're not allowed to do is grab inside the glove for leverage. Which is what he wound up doing eventually, just through the course of hand fighting. So, uh, um, Probably the first two rounds are the best of this fight. And they're somewhat worth watching. Um, Gutierrez fairly active with his kicks. But... Little bit pr- got pressured a little bit, and the power that Song was able to bring towards him ultimately kind of set him on his heels once or twice. Then the wrestling just became a big problem for him once Song realized, oh, I cannot wrestle you, and here we go. Then this turned into an MMA fight from like 15 years ago. Um, man, I feel like for the last like five or six years we've been saying about Song, if he developed a good jab and could cut off the cage effectively, boy, would he be in a really great position. But what's the... Isn't that like Watchmen, right? Like the, the Watchmen comic? Where it's you know, um, Dr. Manhattan doing the... The year is whatever, same thing. Ten years later, same thing. Like It's a little bit like that with Song. It's, um, you know, it's 2007. When did he debut in the UFC? Hang on. Make sure I get this right. He debuts, yeah, 17. Very end of 17, so. He moved to Bantamweight in 18, so, okay, like, since 2018. It's been like, boy, if he got a jab going, and if he could cut the cage instead of following consistently... And that's just kind of been the refrain throughout his UFC career. And the fact that he's had as much success as he has without those is a testament to how good he is. Unfortunately, he trains at a team that is not going to prioritize some of those skills. Uh, for those of you who don't know, he trains at a team alpha male. And those are still just holes. And... You gotta be real good to punish him for them, but he's run into a couple of guys who have been good enough to punish him, and Gutierrez kind of showcased some of the same things. Like, look at where Gutierrez had success here. It's a lot of the same places that a lot of people have had success against Song. It's just really hard to maintain success against him over a lengthy period of time. Um, Song, after the fight, said, you know, I want to be, I want to go for the belt. Admirable goal. Did he have a specific call out? Can't remember. I mean, Bantamweight's in a little bit of a weird spot. 
because we know we're getting the rematch between Aljamain Sterling and sorry, not Aljamain Sterling, Sean O'Malley and what's his face, Cheeto Vera. We know that. Um, I think they announced this week that Henry Cejudo versus Marab Wallace really has been signed. Um, it's a three-round fight that... If that were five rounds, I would pick Marab. Pretty easily. Three rounds, i got to think about a little bit more. Um, we don't quite know what's up with Aljamain Sterling. He's still kind of been making noise about maybe going up to 145. He, like, briefly called out Max Holloway. Um, I don't think that's going to happen, but he's a little bit in the air. Um, oh, yeah, Song wanted... Because this was supposed to be Song and Piotr Jan. He kind of seems to want that fight, and... Sure, why not? I don't know. Look, Bantamweight's a great division, but... Man, is it just me, or is it hard to get really excited about it right now? I hate saying that about maybe, like, the second-best division in the sport. But, I don't know, I'm just... The talent is there. It's just not... Nothing's really sparking for me, you know? And you might feel differently. You might be like, yay, everything about Bantamweight's great, and I don't... Hey, God bless, man. But I'm personally just... I don't know. I don't know. It's it's been so good for so long that even like a minor dip in like timing and matchmaking and whatnot just feels bad in ways that maybe it would it doesn't for other divisions. Um, but I'm just I need to see like the next three months play out before I can maybe get excited about bantamweight again. I'm. If I can be candid with you guys, I'm not very excited about um, the rematch between O'Malley and Vera. I'm sh- I'm sure it'll be fine. I don't think it'll, it'll be a bad fight, but I, I'm not jumping up and down over it. I'm much more excited about, like, Volkanovski and Teporia. I'm even more excited... This is going to sound really weird. I'm even a little bit more excited for, like, Strickland and DDP than I am for O'Malley and Vera. Which is weird, I know, but... I don't know, this... I'm not going to talk about is how I'm feeling about that. Um, tough loss for Gutierrez, especially down the stretch. Really seemed like he hit a wall. More mentally than physically. Like, he just kind of... Again, just... I hate to say he gave up on himself, because I don't think that's fair or accurate, but got to a point when this is not going his way. I don't think he had a... He didn't have a lot of great... Not This is not a knock on his coaches, because he trains out of Factory X, and Mark Montoya was giving him pretty good advice, because Mark Montoya is a very good coach. But he didn't seem to have a lot of ideas about how to maybe turn things around. And got a little bit complacent with, all right, whatever. And that's kind of what the last two rounds felt like, just kind of, all right, whatever. I'm here, I'm going to do my best to minimize the damage I take, but I know it's not my night, so I'm just going to try not to get, you know, smashed and finished. Um, 
I still think Gutierrez has a decent upside. But, you know, his first main event, his first time going five rounds, like, I'm, I'm going to give the guy the benefit of some doubts here. He's He can rebound from this. His Your first five-round fight is a tough fight against a guy who's kind of a bruiser, pretty well-rounded, and has been in main events before against demonstrably higher level of opposition than Gutierrez has faced. And you're just kind of behind the eight ball a little bit there. And Gutierrez taking this on not super short notice, but relatively short notice. I mean, Song was not exactly happy with how this played out. Look, I mentioned this before. This was supposed to be in Shanghai. And this was supposed to feature, like, the road to UFC whatever season there. Golly. If you ever want to understand a little bit of, like, how the UFC's brand has become so diluted, you've got the road to UFC stuff, which is not bad. You've got the Contender Series, which is not bad from just, like, if you're like, okay, I want to watch some fights, it's it's okay. Ethically, it's, it's horrifying because it's a puppy mill. And somebody put out, there's a graph out right now of like, hey, here's all the guys from different seasons of the Contender Series, which ones made it to the UFC, how they've done, and this skews depending on how recent you get. But if you look at like season one, I think it's only like, what is it, 40% or less of fighters signed to the UFC from that endeavor are still with the UFC. Most of them did not last five fights. Um, it, it, it's just a puppy mill, man. That's all it is. It is a mechanism for discounted labor to, for the human beings to be ground up and spit out for 12 and 12 for six fights. So, again, ethically, it's a little horrifying. If all you're interested in is the fights, the Contender Series is okay. And then you have, like, the most useless IP that the that the UFC oversees is the Ultimate Fighter. Which apparently is coming back in 2020, like, another season in 2024. No one cares. Dude, you've seen the, nu- you've seen the numbers on this thing? No one cares. You threw... Michael Chandler and Conor McGregor as your coaches for the last one to try and drum up interest and nobody cared. Like Conor McGregor stumbling out of the tough house drunk, doing his happy drunk routine on social media, got more views than your entire season combined. This is where we are with this crap. Nobody cares. You know, part of the draw of the Ultimate Fighter, I promise not to stay on this tangent for too long, guys. I Bear with me on this for just a second, though. Um, but a big part of the draw of the Ultimate Fighter back in the day was not only that the cesspool of reality TV was exploding, you didn't have UFC events all that often. You had pay-per-views not even one a month. If you're a newer fan, this may be wild to think about, but... Go back to, like, when was the first season of The Ultimate Fighter? Oh, 
Six oh seven. Um oh five. So why is this such a pain to find? Yeah, oh five. Jeez. What the UFC schedule was like in two thousand five? Just to kind of further this point here. So if we go all the way back to 05, the UFC's first event in 2005 was in February, UFC 51. April. April 9th was the tough one finale. Um, so nothing in January, February 5th, nothing in March, nothing in March. April 9th, April 16th, June 4th, nothing in July, August 6th, August 20th, nothing in September, October 3rd, October 7th, nothing in the November 5th, November 19th, nothing in December. Uh, the November 5th card, by the way, was the other, was season, it was the season two finale for the Ultimate Fighter. That's what they had. That's... That is, hang on, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 10. 10 total UFC events in the year of our Lord, 2005. That's not one event a month. If, and again, if you only came into the UFC, like, with Connor, you're used to this every week thing. That they've got going on now. I was around back then. I know that part of the draw of watching The Ultimate Fighter every week was, hey, you get to watch a fight. That was more so than the stupid drunken shenanigans and whatnot. Like, for a big portion of the fan base, you watch this because I don't have any MMA to watch, or I struggle to find it. And I get to watch a fight at the end of this. So I'll watch, I'll at least watch the fight. Now, boy, do we not have that problem. <laughs> boy, do we not have that problem. So the Ultimate Fighter just, it, it serves no purpose. It hasn't, it hadn't for a long time before it lost a home. And then when they tried to bring it back, it became even more clear that it doesn't serve a purpose. Dude, that last season was like, hey, here's guys trying for a shot, and here's guys who have been in the UFC and been cut and came back. Boy, I wonder which of these groups is going to be better, right? No, but the coaches fight. Kiss my... Yeah, here's Conor McGregor and Michael Chandler. Boy, we've wasted everyone's time with that nonsense, haven't we? Anyway. <sighs> Sorry. Promise not to stay on that tangent for too long. I stayed on it a little bit too long. My apologies. But yeah, that's that's kind of where we are with that. So, light heavyweight, co-main event. Khalil Roundtree defeats Anthony Smith via TKO punches 56 seconds of the third round. Uh, 
Um, Smith does okay in the first two rounds. He loses, I think he lost both of them. But he's doing okay-ish. He's pressuring. Roundtree's not great about dealing with pressure. He's not as bad as he used to be, but still not great. And in the second round, Smith kind of starts landing some front kicks to the body. And Roundtree doesn't like those. Smith doesn't really go back to them, though. There was one that he caught Roundtree with that I think really it may have messed with Roundtree more, certainly more than Smith realized. Because Smith's corner even went, you heard him, go. And he didn't quite. Um, but Roundtree's power, man, it's it's just a problem. It always has been, but it's it's just a problem. His cage craft is still kind of an issue. He stopped the takedowns of Anthony Smith. Smith's not a great takedown artist, though. Smith's jiu-jitsu is pretty good. Not great, but pretty good. But he's never been a wrestler in, M- in the MMA context. He's never been great about getting people down. Um, when he does find himself there, he has some success. I mean, dude choked out Alexander Gustafson. That's nothing to sneeze at. Um, but you know, the, the takedowns are just, they're not the best part of his game. And the finishing sequence from Roundtree is really good, actually. He starts hand-fighting a bit, their opposite stances. And he does so slowly. Like, you know, kind of that methodical, a little bit lethargic even hand speed. Hand, right hand, his lead hand, because his southpaw comes down to his waist. Sort of starts coming up like an uppercut. And then about a third of the way through the motion, he switches from lackadaisical to, I'm going to take your head off. Cracks him with the uppercut. A powerful left hand follows. Hits him on the temple. He, tur- Smith lands back in his stance and then you know can't find his footing. Drops. Roundtree kind of stands over him, looking with his left hand raised up, like I'm gonna come down with a big old hammer fist. And he waited because he knew it was over. And the referee took. If Khalil Roundtree wanted to, he could have hit Smith at least one more time, given how. This referee Jaron Vallel, I believe. He took his... I'd say took his time, but... Because that wouldn't be accurate. There was an opportunity for more damage if Roundtree wanted, and he chose not to take it, and if I got waved off anyway. Um, two things, I suppose, about this. One, let me start with a... Let me start with a negative. If you watch this fight, Roundtree still has this weird habit of when he gets a little bit flustered, he throws weird stuff. Like, he'll throw standing hammer fists and, like, just weird stuff. It's usually when he's flustered. And because he hits so hard, it's still kind of something you have to be aware of. But it's it's just a, I'm not really comfortable here, Get get away from me. Something to pay attention to. My big positive from this. um, He changed speeds on his punches, especially in the finishing sequence. I can't tell you how valuable a tool that is. Um, There was a a, uh, a Major League Baseball pitcher. I forget his name. But he brought up that absent something providing context for speed... The human eye is very bad at determining speed. This is true. 
and there's tons of studies around this. Like, if you don't, if you just like see a car driving on like an an empty field, if you don't have anything to kind of give context for how fast that car is moving around things, you don't you you would be very very bad at judging how fast it's going. And that's just kind of how our brains work. I mean, if you've ever done, um, you know, river rafting or whatnot, if you see a river that, if you're not dealing with, like, rapids, if all you see is the water, if you don't see, like, debris in the water floating, and I don't mean debris like anything major, but people are bad at just looking at a river flow and going, how fast is that? If you're ever curious about this, grab a stick from the shoreline, toss it a little bit, toss a little bit out into the river, and watch how fast it goes. Um, it'll give you perspective on that. And sometimes you have slower, sometimes you have faster, but if there's nothing else flowing to help you determine how fast the river is, it's one of the things you do, like, oh, it's going pretty fast today. Okay. Um, and the, this baseball pitcher, the reason he brought that up was, if I, basically, if I can control the speed of my pitches... I can really mess with somebody because all they see is the ball coming at them. There's not a lot of context, especially given the direction of travel, right? So they're kind of guessing. And part, a big part of like how batters determine what they're going to swing at, like there's a lot that goes into that. There's trying to figure out where they're going to go. Um, you know, zone-wise, um, you basically divide that into... Was it six quadrants? Well, quadrants would be wrong, but yeah, like like upper left, upper middle, upper right, middle, and then lower. Some some of them only do it in fourths. But so you figure out where they're going to aim that strategically, and then you watch how the pitcher's arm moves and where the ball is released to determine what kind of pitch they're throwing. But if you can throw a fastball, I know there's a few different kinds of fastballs, but for the sake of conversation, if your fastball comes out of your hand the same way every time, but you can modulate whether or not it's coming out at 90 miles an hour or 70 miles an hour, you will turn batters into, you you will turn them inside out. Because if they're seeing it come at them, they're kind of just a suit. There's patterns you do around speed. And especially given how your eyes work, which are not actually lenses, your eyes are basically probability generators. At least that's how it relates to your brain, but that's way too. That's a whole other thing. But they can't tell if that ball, they can't in real time look at that ball, how it's traveling at them, and go, oh, he took a lot off of this. It's only 70 miles an hour instead of 90, so wait another beat, then swing, versus 90, which is, boy, you better anticipate that because it's coming in a hurry. And being able to vary your punch speed has a very similar benefit. If you're used to kind of, again, you kind of lull, this is a psychological component to this as well, you lull people in with, okay, going a little bit slower, going a little bit lighter, and then change the tempo, change the intensity, you will catch people off guard, and catching them off guard is almost as important as landing cleanly. Maybe more so. That'll vary a little bit fighter to fighter. 
Uh, great demonstration of that skill here from Roundtree. Really good stuff in that respect. Um, tough loss for Anthony Smith. He took this on short notice. This was supposed to be Roundtree and Azamat Mirzakhanov. They were supposed to fight last week. Mirzakhanov had pneumonia. Um, hope he recovers from that. Man, pneumonia will mess you up. I mean, that kills people. Usually not the young and healthy, but it's not unheard of. It, it'll mess you up, so hopefully he recovers. Um, yeah, Smith is just on the downside of his career, and Roundtree seems to really have found his stride lately, so he's probably due another step up. Uh, he said after the fight, you know, the fight that's driving me is I really want to fight Alex Pereira. Um, okay. <laughs> He's not going to get that next. Um, this is a good win, but... I don't know, I find it unlikely he gets that next. We did lose Blahovich out of the Rakich fight, though. Um, Jan Blahovich had to have um, shoulder surgery, I think it was. Some kind of, I believe shoulder surgery, but don't quote me. It was surgery of some variety. Pulled him out of the rematch with Alexander Rakich. Rakich coming back after his knee injury. Um, hopefully Rakich can get a slightly softer touch for his return fight. <laughs> but we don't know what's up with him. Um, Yuri's probably going to need another fight. We don't know what Pereira's doing. A lot of speculation about him maybe going up to heavyweight. Who knows? Um, just, who the heck knows? I appreciate Roundtree saying, that's the fight driving me. Putting you, putting it out there into the public consciousness. Not the worst idea in the world. Probably going to need one more win, but... Light heavyweight's also still very open. Let's see, lightweight Nazrat Hakparas stops Jamie Malarkey. 144 the first. Um, just clubs him with a left hand. Then a barrage grabs the single collar tie, uppercuts, drops drops him again, gets the stoppage. Good win for Hawk Perust. He looked pretty good here. Bantamweight between two flyweights. This was supposed to be Sumudarji and uh, Alad Nascimento. I think that's the fight I previewed. Um, Nascimento falls out. Tim Elliott steps in. And Tim Elliott, first round, technical submission, arm triangle, 402, you know, the first round. Um, on the feet, Sumudarji had some success. He landed his left hand. Elliott kind of gutted through it because, you know, Sumudarji does not have thunderous power. You don't really want to get hit consistently by him, but Elliott's got a bit of a chin. Uh, but once he got the takedown, Elliot just good overall grappling, passes, threatens, passes, threatens, threatens the arm triangle, gets the back, some more threats there, goes back to the arm triangle. Uh, pretty good win from... T this was contested at bantamweight because of the short notice. Elliot, after the fight, said, you know, I'm pretty sure my title aspirations are over at this point. He's probably right about that. And Paul Felder, bless him, doing the interview, said, no, I think you had a lot left in the tank. Like, I get you're just saying that because that's what you're supposed to say. But I think Elliot's self-assessment there is probably correct. But he does still have stuff he wants to show. He's not retiring. He was like, what am I, you know, what am I doing this for? There's a lot about my skill set that 
I haven't been able to show in the octagon, so I'm going to keep doing that at flyweight. And if you need me in short notice, I am fine to do that at bantamweight. Um, good win for him. Tough setback for Sumudarji, but uh, hopefully he can learn from it. Pretty decent. Good finish, actually. Some of the way that Elliot set up that arm triangle was kind of sweet. And kicking off the main card, Andre Muniz defeated Jun Young Park via split decision 29-28. I scored this for Park. I don't think it's wrong to score it for Muniz. I just disagree. Um, Muniz, first round, um, just spends it on Park's back. Not even on the mat. Just like, I've got the rear waist lock, and I'm going to take you down. Let you get. Then you get up, and I take you down, and we just did that. Second round looked to be a little bit more the same. Park landed a bit on the feet before they got tied up. Then Park breaks his hooks and turns into him and spends the last, I want to say, minute or so on top of Muniz trying to punch him and elbow him in the face. Um, I thought he sc- I thought he stole that round. Third round I also gave to Park. Was that this first? No, no, it was the um, second and third I think I gave to Park. Um, but so the long and the short of that was, as a scoring issue, if you give Muniz rounds one and two, I don't wholly disagree. Um, did I give Muniz the third? I can't re- I can't remember, and that, frankly, I don't care. Um... One of my my only issue here, and this is a scoring issue. Um, there was a judge who gave Park the first round, but not the third. My issue with that is it's wildly inconsistent. If you give Park, was it the first or the second? Might have been the first that he stole, and then Muniz had the second. I I swear I don't remember that. It's all very similar, so forgive me if I forget some of the rounds confused here. Might have been the first that Park stole, and then Muniz with the second round just had superior control, and then the third, I still kind of thought Park edged. In fact, I think that's what it was. Um, for the sake of consistency, now I am compelled to look the, to look this up. Because I do not wish to be uh, incorrect in my recollections. Um, Yeah, I gave Park the first and the third. Okay, that's what it was. Muniz in the second one just had a lot of back riding. And then in the first, he had a lot of that same kind of stuff. But Park, again, broke his hooks late, got on top for the last minute, and was kind of, you know, elbowing him in the head a lot. Um, but the point there is, if you're going to give Park the first, you really should give him the third just to remain internally consistent with your application. Not doing that is a problem. You give Muniz one and two, or oh, sorry, one and three. One and three. Is it really two and three? Yeah. If you want to give Muniz two and three. My issue with the first one is Muniz had a lot of control, but he had did nothing with it. I mean, nothing. Then again, one of the judges also gave him the first one, so who knows. Um, my my gripe here is just the inconsistency with that judge. 
If you thought Park did enough to win the first, he did enough to win the third. By your own internal logic. So, I thought Park won that. I'm not up in arms over 29-28 Muniz. Um, not, not really the win Muniz needed after his skid recently. Still got a lot of the same problems, and people are starting to pick up on his tricks. Um, prelims. Kevin Jusay defeats Song Kanan via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the board. Really good performance from Jusay here. Um, keep Song mostly at kicking distance. Had a real good feel for the range. A lot of front kicks, a lot of jabs. He busts up the right side of Song's face pretty badly. Um, really good stuff out of Jusay here. I slept on him a bit too much in my preview for this. That's on me. Um, he looked good here. Flyweight, Hyunsung Park defeats Shannon Ross via TKO, knee and punches, 359 of the second. Um, knee and punches is not entirely accurate. Um, Park hits to start the finish. Um, Ross comes in, looks for like a dipping jab to the body. And as he's kind of stepping in and throwing that... Park, they're both orthodox, throws a left front kick that catches him right on the liver. And if you're familiar with your breathing patterns when you're striking, you exhale when you strike. Part, there's a lot of reasons for this. It gives you a very small biomechanical advantage in your punching power. All the old karate guys can give will be happy I mentioned that one. So there's that. The big thing it does is brace your core, especially for return fire. And the worst time in the world to get hit in the body is when you're breathing in. So you breathe out when you might get hit. It helps you brace your core. It stops you from getting the wind knocked out of you because what part of what happens when you get the wind knocked out of you is you inhale. Your body thinks it's inhaled. You take a force that forces the air out of your lungs, but... Elements of your musculature are still in the position where, no, nope, we've inhaled. So, you know, that sucks. And you just spend a second or two going, <coughs> trying to desperately <laughs> reset your, uh, sort of your, par that's not fully parasympathetic nervous system. Cause your, par your breathing triggers part of it, but trying to reset things like, nope, need oxygen, need oxygen. And then you, you get it back and, <sighs> but. Gutierrez, Gutierrez. Um, Ross was clearly not expecting to get hit right then. And if he's starting to exhale but not braced, that sucks too. And it's well positioned, it's right on the liver, and it locks him up. Um, Park bulls forward, digs a left to the body, brings it. Back, combination back up top, gets the guard up, hits him in the body again, throws a knee, drops him. Um, Park looked pretty good this whole fight. Uh, for as long as it lasted. Ross has had a rough UFC run, and he was brought here to make a guy that the UFC like look good. And that sucks a little bit for him. He performed okay. Um, I don't know that he's really a UFC caliber guy. But he's he's not a bum, and I, I don't mean to give that impression. But the UFC pretty clearly had who they wanted to win this, and they wanted Park, to Park's credit, delivered big time. 
Um, good finish from him. Lightweight, uh, Steve Garcia just... What he did to Melchior Acosta, man. Um, elbows, 101 of the second. So, first round, Costa, just a lot of back riding. That's with the hooks, that's with the rear waist lock, that's just a lot of that. Second round looks like it's going to be a little bit more of the same. Um, so it kind of starts that way, then Garcia gets free, hits him with, um, hit him with something. With a right hook. Drops him with a punch, gets on, forces things back to the fence, gets on top. Costa, in full guard, trying to get some control, trying to regain things. And Garcia passes, gets mount, lands punches. and The finishing sequence is brutal. It is just this barrage of elbows. And you can hear the thud and you can kind of hear Costa's head hit the canvas. Um, yeah, nasty stuff from Garcia on the finish. A lot of people slept on him. I think I, I think I picked Costa, but I, I gave Garcia his credit for his props before this one. Good win for him. Uh, Luana Santos defeats Stephanie Egger via unanimous decision at 30-27 and 229-28. Disagree with the 30-27 pretty strongly. Um, fight sucked. The best flyweight prospect in the UFC that they refuse to actually put in good positions. Tatsuro Taira defeats Carlos Hernandez via punches, 55 seconds of the second round. I don't know why they put this guy further down on the card than uh, Hyunsung Park. That's not a knock on Park. But Park's in his second UFC fight. And they're giving him a more prominent position than the guy who is, what now, 6-0 and in the division? Only 23. Sorry, 5-0. and He was 4-0 coming into this, 5-0 and now. Um, 4 and 0 technically at flyweight. He has one fight that took place at a catchweight because there was um, a replacement issue. Um, only 23. I've been hip to Tyra for a li- for a minute or two here now, guys, and I've been saying this guy's very good. I understand the UFC not like throwing him into the deep end. Young, still developing in some respects. But putting him right before the curtain jerker is frankly disrespectful. Um, That's all I can say about that. It is just disrespectful. This guy's upside is too good. His current ability is too good. He's got a decent personality. And... First round is mostly, to the fight itself, the first round is mostly Tyra dominating on the mat. Like, they hit a few, they have a few good scrambles, but Tyra's a great scrambler, usually in the better position. Um, second round, he cracks Hernandez with a 1-2, badly hurts him, is able to pound him out. You you can go back and listen to some of my other shows. I've been I've been singing this guy's praises for a little bit here. Pay attention to Tatsuro Taira. The UFC should be putting him in a more prominent position than almost curtain jerking a forgettable fight night card. 
this guy could very well contend for the title. Not not immediately. Only 23. There's no need to rush that. But fighters, especially in their 20s, man, they gain skills rapidly. He had had problems with his striking his last couple of fights. Clearly worked on it. Demonstrated much better striking here. Again, pay attention to this guy. I don't know if 2024 he fights for the belt, but I would bet by 20 in 2025 he does. He's that good. And until proven otherwise, he is that good. So watch out for that guy. And kicking everything off, Talita Alencar defeated um, Hayat Amanda via split decision 29-28. I, this fight sucked. I scored it for Amanda, but she won the first round. Kind of gave up the second and then didn't do it. The third, you could have flipped a coin. Um, not a good fight. And that was your card. There was good stuff. I'm not going to pretend there wasn't. But ultimately, a little bit forgettable. Um, so your bonuses. There was no fight of the night. I can understand that. I really can. If I were going to give one, when would I have given it? Um, if I had to pick one, I think it would have been Jusei and uh, Song. But all things considered, I, I, there was no great fight. Your performances of the night went to Khalil Roundtree, Nazrat Hakpares, Tim Elliott, and and Park and excuse me, Hyunsung Park. Once again, the disrespect to Tatsuro Tyra. I I don't know why they don't like him, but I'm convinced they don't now. There's enough evidence they're like, no, we're going to stick you on the prelims. Not just on the prelims, like early on the prelims, and we're just not going to tell, not going to talk about you. And he's easily the best prospect in that division. Easily. And I would have given him a bonus here. Ooh, over. Honestly, probably over Elliot. I'm trying to knock Tim Elliott or anything, but I would have given Tyra the bonus over him. And that was the card. You can find my full report in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com if you're so inclined. That's where it exists. All right, moving on. UFC 296 this coming Saturday. This is it. The last UFC event of 2023. And you know what? They brought a darn good pay-per-view card. Um, David, we had to deal with a replacement. I'll get to that specifically, but this is a really good card, pretty much top to bottom. I mean, there's a few that are a little bit iffy and 14 fights is just too many. I've, I've been saying that for a long time. That's just too many fights, but as a general rule, this is a good card, and it deserves its credit as such. Main event for the welterweight title. Leon Edwards, fresh off of his second win over Kamaru Usman, goes for his second title defense against Colby Covington, the former interim champion, two-time title challenger, who I thought beat Kamaru Usman in their second fight. 
Um, this is probably Covington's last shot at gold, for being candid here. I do not think he is the most deserving contender right now. Feel free to go back and check the archives. I've I've said for a while, Bilal Muhammad is the deserving number one contender here. I'm not exactly a fan of Bilal Muhammad, but he is meritocratically the next guy in line. And I have to I speak the truth as best I can. Covington is not the most deserving contender. Bilal Muhammad is. Nobody cares about Bilal Muhammad, so the UFC is looking for any opportunity to do something other than give Bilal Muhammad the shot. I don't like that the promotion does that, but they've done that. That's been the MO for a while. Um, this fight itself, I have gone a little bit back and forth on. Covington is maybe the last gasp from the old, kind of this older guard at welterweight. Usman is pretty clearly past his prime. He was, he's the second best welterweight champion the UFC's ever had. He is surpassed only by George St. Pierre, and he was kind of knocking on that door before Edwards head kicked him. Um, but that, you know, Usman, Covington, Wonderboy, um... Many other guys from this era, like Vicente Luque, Santiago Ponzinibbio, that same like group of guys who were very good. And again, one of those was champion, one of them was anti. Like, but they've been doing this for enough time has passed that they're about due to be cycled out. Covington is kind of the last gasp of that because Edwards is a little bit younger than that group, and just old, like older enough to be fully a fully matured and realized fighter for guys like. Bilal Muhammad, Sean Brady, the, the younger guys coming up right now, Bilal Muhammad, Sean Brady, Shavkat Rachmanov, other guys we're going to get into. Um, Colby Covington hasn't been horribly active. He only fought once last year. I believe it was the Masvidal win. And he's, he's what? He's 35. He's almost 36. He'll be 36 in February. So he he's hit that limit, man. He's hit that uh, that horrible line of demarcation. Because I'll say it again, 35 and over, fighting at welterweight and below in the UFC in UFC title fights, you have a grand total of one guy who's ever won UFC title fights after that age. It was Tyron Woodley. He did it first to 40-year-old Damian Maya and second to horribly overmatched Darren Till. Um, Edwards, by contrast, is only 32. So he's probably got a couple of years of his prime. The age is a problem. Here's the thing about this, though, and here's why I'm, I've am i gone back and forth. If you look at what Leon Edwards did against Kamar Usman, you might be led to believe that this is kind of a... Like, he should be able to beat Covington without a whole lot of difficulty. It's a it's a mistake to think that Covington fights like Kamaru Usman because a lot of oh well, they're both wrestlers right yeah but in fact ahead of their first fight you can check the archives on this and I know they're on the YouTube channel if nothing else I did 
two back-to-back kind of deep dives into uh, Covington and Usman and the differences in their game. And again, this was before their first fight. The differences in how it might match up with Edwards are pretty stark. Usman has more one-punch power, but Usman more methodical on the feet. They're both wrestlers. Usman doesn't shoot a lot of blast doubles for a variety of reasons. Likes control. And Leon Edwards was very well-schooled for that. He was the better striker at distance. But he really excelled because he's a very good clinch fighter, Leon Edwards, especially on the breaking the clinch. Worked hard at neutralizing potentially um, even positions in clinches that are not even when you're opposite Kamaru Usman. Worked very hard on neutralizing those and clinch breaking and keeping the fight where he needed it. That worked extremely well against Usman, especially in their third fight, their second title fight, right? That basically won him that because their first title fight, he got the takedown on Usman, actually got his back, won the first round, but was losing the others after that, got out clinched, got taken down. Found the head kick, and then when he didn't have to fight at altitude, actually just fought better all fight in their third fight. But that's not how Colby Covington fights. Covington's wrestling is not nearly as much static control. It's a lot more scrambly. It's a lot more movement. It's a lot more energy. His striking is not as damaging as Kamaru Usman's, but it's a lot more volume. The dude's motor is just it's just insane. And he just... Now, that does open him up a bit more to get countered, and that's a problem against Leon Edwards. But... It, I've seen a lot of people do the, you know, if the more this is on the feet, he's just going to get lit up. He has to wrestle. Eh. I'm not saying it. I'm not saying he is the better striker than Leon Edwards. I don't think that's true technically. But I don't think that his style of striking lends itself to like trading artillery fire. That's kind of what Leon Edwards does, or you know, sniper fire. Edwards is not much of a firefighter, right? He's not a huge volume guy. He's accuracy. And that's a big deal, man. There's a there's a quote that's attributed to Wyatt Earp. I don't know how accurate the attribution is. But when asked about, you know, what do you need in a gunfight? They said, you know, speed is fine, but accuracy is final. That's very true with firearms. Mo- it's pretty much true with striking as well. And Edwards prides his accuracy. Like, that's his big thing. I feel like in that that most recent Usman fight, he threw fewer total strikes than Usman, but landed more total strikes than Usman, which is a heck of a thing to pull off. And he's got some power. Uh, 
and if Covington is complacent with him, he can get hit. We've seen him hurt before. He can absolutely get finished by Leon Edwards. But Covington doesn't strike like Usman. He wants a firefight. He wants to bull forward, he wants to get in close, and he wants to overwhelm you. He just throws everything but the kitchen sink at you. Feel free to double-check the numbers in the Lawler fight. They were absurd. Even both of his fights with Usman. He's just doing a lot. And... (laughs) That can be a problem for Edwards. I'm not saying it's going to be. I'm saying he might have a... He might have a way to deal with this. But he needs a way to deal with that because Covington is going to force that issue. And the style of wrestling is very different. It's still going to be a problem trying to clinch break. Um, Covington can get a little... a little reckless there. This is kind of why I've gone back and forth on this. It's not a... Oh, Covington's a wrestler. He's got an advantage. It's it's about the style. It's about the style of fight that Covington brings. He want that dude's nickname is not Chaos for nothing. He likes high energy. He likes high output. He likes a a speed race. He likes a sprint. Because he has firm belief that he can fight at a higher pace for longer than you can. And as a general rule, that's been true. I know people who are picking this both ways. And I am not going to disc... uh, I'm not out here discounting Colby Covington's chances. At all. At all, at all, at all. You know... Okay, here's the other thing. And this is like voodoo BS. But I am going to say it for the sake of saying it out loud. So, about six months ago... Somebody pointed out that this got circulating online. Hey, look at these fights that are coming up. Because in the next little bit, we're going to have um, Aljamain Sterling versus Sean O'Malley. We're going to have Israel Adesanya versus Sean Strickland. And we're going to have Leon Edwards versus Colby Covington. It was in t- Somebody pointed this out. Uh, This was like a Twitter thing for a little bit before it started happening. It's entirely conceivable that these three guys representing like three entirely different generations of like... I don't mean this. uh, Represent like three generations of bad behavior. And if you're curious what I mean by that, allow me to propose the following to you. I don't think any... I don't know any of these people enough to make moral judgments about their character. So let me start there. This is about their public personas. And in the case of a few of them, in the case of Covington, I know his public persona is very different from his personal from his personal life. I know that. Is there some overlap? Yes. This is not a this is not a wild disconnect, but he's a guy who has amped things up for the sake of the public, because you know. He kind of needed to. And I don't think Sean O'Malley is quite as, yeah, as he appears to be, but I, don't know, I might be wrong about that one. Anyway, 
Sean Strickland actually is just kind of what you see is what you get. But if you look at, like, again, elements of bad behavior that they could represent. Sean Strickland's like that old school, like, Call of Duty lobby guy. Probably saying the N-word <laughs> at, a, at a point in time. Then Covington is the political troll. And Sean O'Malley is the, like, not quite misogynist for the, the current generation. Like, toe in that line. And <laughs> so you got these, like, three, theoretically three generations, like, that are representative of, like, bad behavior. And I'm sure there's some idiots out there going, that, yeah, there's also three white guys beating three black guys. But it just, it got brought up to like, hey, by the end of the year, we could have this. All three of these guys could be champions. And then O'Malley over Sterling was, I thought it was unlikely, but not surprising. Strickland over Adesanya was mind-blowing. Like, never saw that one coming. I, I kind of knew, like, okay, if O'Malley wins, how is he going to win? I knew how he could win that fight. Because he wasn't going to out-grapple Aljamain Sterling, keep distance, catch him with a punch, because he got power and accuracy. Ta-da, he did. I didn't know how Sean Strickland could beat Adesanya. And he did. Like, I scored that fight for him pretty cleanly. I gave Izzy, what was it, the second round I gave Izzy? But, like, Sean Strickland won that fight. And somehow we arrived at the point where arguably the most competitive of those three fights on paper is now the last one stopping this weird thing from having happened in 2023. And because this is MMA, like that being completed via Covington winning the welterweight title would be the funniest thing. Um, and I'm, I know people whose opinion I respect a lot who are leaning towards Covington here. And I understand why. And I've gone back and forth on this one. Ultimately, I'm leaning towards Leon Edwards for the following reasons. One is the age. It's not insurmountable, but boy, is that a big hurdle for Covington to overcome. The activity is a bit of an issue, because Covington, again, I'm pretty sure it was the Masvidal fight, right? Confirm that. Yeah, that was March of last year, so he's been out for over a year and a half. And he's not been horribly active lately. He fought twice in 2019, once beat Robbie Lawler, then lost to Usman. Once in 2020, when he beat Tyron Woodley. Once in 2021, when he lost the decision to Usman. I scored that for Covington, but I don't think it was... I'm not up in arms over Usman getting it. And then once in 2022, when he beat Masvidal. That, again, that's kind of where we are. So that's a little bit of a problem for me. The age... And Leon Edwards' ability to fight in the clinch, I think, is going to be... Usman didn't want to fight in the clinch with Covington in any of their fights. He was good about stopping it from happening. Because Covington getting close means he can force a lot of activity. 
Edwards being able to fight in the clinch as well as he does, I think, will also be kind of a problem for him. Now, this is a slight lean. I am I take Colby Covington's chances of winning this fight very seriously. Both men are southpaws, which might screw up some of what I think Edwards in particular um, does a little bit more fighting of open stance and does a lot of rear leg kicking because of it. I think that might be a problem for him. I I think if, if Covington when Covington gets rolling. Again, man, his motor is nuts, his output is insane, and he just kind of drowns you in the activity and the chaos. I take his chances very, very, very seriously. I'm just... I'm just leaning ever so slightly towards Edwards. Part of me is kind of hoping Covington wins, again, just for the just for the meme at this point. Like, just so we can say, hey... Look what happened in 2023. Sean O'Malley beat Sterling. Sean Strickland beat Israel Adesanya. And Colby Covington beat Leon Edwards. And just the era of like three different generations of dude bro has returned to rule the MMA landscape. Um, I wouldn't have a lot of hopes for a long Covington reign. I don't know how much I think Sean Strickland's going to have a long reign. He's got to fight DDP. And I'm not, I, I will never sleep on Sean Strickland's chances of winning a fight again. That's not the same as saying I like his chances. I'm just, I'm never sleeping on him again, saying I don't know how he can do it. Because he did something I already thought he couldn't do. But that's where we are again. I'm leaning towards AdWords, but the part in me that just likes watching elements, segments of MMA burn is kind of hoping Covington wins because it amuses me. Anyway, that's your main event. Not the most deserving number one contender in the form of Covington, but it's a good fight. I'm not complaining about it. On a merit base, it should be Bilal Muhammad and Leon Edwards, and it would sell a lot less. I also think that... I would I picked Leon Edwards to beat Bilal Muhammad when they had the no contest, and that first round, he beat the crap out of Muhammad before the eye poke. And I, I, I'm i not one of those guys who's like, oh, no, Blal wanted a way out. No, dude got poked in the eye and couldn't continue. If you didn't want that to happen, Edwards shouldn't have poked him in the eye. But I would favor Leon Edwards to beat Blal Muhammad without a lot of consideration there. Like, that's just a bad matchup for Blal. Covington might be a bad matchup for Edwards. Anyway... Co-main event, flyweight title, Alexandre Pantoja, 33 years old, um, won the belt, split decision, his last fight, July of this year, I'm glad he took as much time off as he did, man. If y'all remember that fight, his fight with Brandon Moreno, that's on my shorter list for fight of the year. Man, that was a war. That was an absolute war. And he gutted his way through that. He really did. Um, those two, man, you talk about fights where you're like, we're going into the basement level of hell. And those two, man, they went, that's where they went. If 
How do I phrase this? When you're pushed that far, weird stuff comes out of you. Especially if you've never really been to that part of yourself. Because there comes a point when it's not physical anymore. When it is psychological and emotional. And you've seen other fighters when they have those kinds of fights. Those just... Again, we're in the trenches, we're slogging back and forth, and we're just... Again, we're marching into hell together. And when they come out of it, especially the first time it happens to them, they wind up revealing something after the fact that you may not have known was there. In the case of Pan... I do not believe Alessandre Pantoja had in his mind before this fight, if I win, I'm going to call out my father, who I am slightly estranged from. I think during the course of that fight... That came up in his head. That came up in his emotions. Like, what am I doing here? I'm in this dogfight. I've trained hard. I'm tired. I'm beat up. He's tired. He's beat up. And he looks like he can go further and harder than I can. And what am I doing here? And somewhere in the recesses of your soul, when you're in that kind of a position, comes whatever motivates you, some part of what motivates you. And different things will come up at different times. I think the fact that what came up from his was that uh, was a little bit telling. I think that's why he went to it after the fact when they're interviewing him and he does the, are you proud of me now, dad? Um, That's, and again, you go to the basement level of hell, you will find stuff in your basement that you did not know was there. And he and Brandon Moreno took lumps and years out of each other in that fight. It's one of my biggest concerns about him in this fight is just, you can't do that very often. Now, to his credit, I don't think he had all that often. I mean, Pantosha's had a very good UFC run. Um, his only loss is he lost early in his career to Dustin Ortiz. Won three fights, lost to Davis and Figueredo in a good fight. Figueredo, of course, are going to become champion. Beats Matt Schnell, loses to Askar Askarov, who unfortunately wound up retiring, but had a... Dude, Askarov was very good and hasn't lost since. He beat Manel Kopp. He choked out Brandon Royval, who's his opponent here. He submitted Alex Perez with a neck crank, and then he wins the title in this blood and guts war. And it's a good run he's on, but there's always question marks when you have one of those fights. Because, man, you are dumping out everything you have. Athletically, emotionally, mentally. You are th- you throw everything you have at that. And then you pick up the pieces. And the thing about that is you never get all of them back. You never get all of them back. You might be able to assemble enough. But every one of those fights, you lose something. This has been true in boxing forever. It's always been true in MMA. Those fights, you lose stuff you can't get back. 
it's not an accident that certain fighters, after being in those fights, change their style. If they don't, they don't stick around very long because you can't do it. Dude, Justin Gagey could not have kept doing what he was doing. He could not... It just wasn't sustainable. He was... Look at how much of himself he threw out there to fight Michael Johnson. It's a great brawl. I love that fight. I really do. But... Good grief, man. Did you not have to march into the darkest corner of hell to beat Michael Johnson? You chose to, because that's how you fight. You kind of have to fight that way against Eddie Alvarez. And you pretty much have to fight that way against Dustin Poirier. Because Dustin Poirier fights that way, too. And But he retooled after that by necessity. He could have tried to fight that way against the next guys he fought. He could have tried to fight that way against James Vick, Cowboy Cerrone, Edson Barboza. Like, he could have tried that. It, he might even have won those fights anyway, but you like you fight Edson Barboza like that at your peril. He still had the action hero in him against Barboza, mostly because he wanted to pressure Barboza. That's what unsettles him. But he didn't fight Cerrone the way he fought some of those other guys. He darn sure didn't... He darn sure didn't even fight Michael Chandler. Like, those two went into hell anyway, because, of course, they did. But Gagey's style has shifted. Like, when he came out after one of those fights, might have been the Poirier one, and said, yeah, I've only got, like, three or four more of those in me. I can't do that every time. He's only had one of those since. I would only consider the Chandler fight to be one of those fights. Um, he was just... You could maybe argue the Ferguson fight, but he spent so much of that fight just being better. Being a terrible matchup for Tony Ferguson is bludgeoning him. But you know, the Oliveira fight wasn't one of those fights. It was a bad loss, but it wasn't one of those. Um, the Fiziv fight? It's closer, but... Even then, I don't necessarily think it was one of those. You know, he, he extended his career, basically, by going, okay, I can only do that X number of more times, so how about I fight in a way where I don't have to do that any more often than is absolutely necessary? And I don't, I'm curious about Pantoja, what he's got after doing that. Um, Royval has done pretty good work lately. He got stopped by Brandon Moreno. His only two losses in the UFC, Brandon Moreno and Alessandre Pantoja. Former champion, current champion. He That fight with Rogerio Bontarin was pretty darn close. Then the wins over Matt Schell and Matthews Nicolau were both very good. How old is Royville? 31? Okay, the age is fairly close. Royville's done a little bit of kind of retooling. It's helped him a lot. I don't know how much it's going to help him here. I'm still going to lean towards Pantoja. I'm going to go with Pantoja here. Um, there are still question marks about him, and if he left too much of himself in that fight with Moreno, then Royville will be able to beat him. But I'm going to go with Pantoja. He's beaten him before. Royville's not exactly the same, but that still means something. 
and there there is actually a bit of comfort after you've done what he just did like oh i can do that there's no way this fight's gonna be worse than that that was a slog through hell <laughs> and royville might be a very tough fight but you know, I, I kind of doubt it's going to be a repeat of the Pantoja-Moreno fight. Like that's, I find that unlikely. So I'm, I'm going to go with Pantoja, but once again, I'm not sleeping on Royval. He's very good. And it will not surprise me if Pantoja just left too much of himself in that cage last time. Uh, but going with the champion, pretty good fight. Very, very good co-main event title fight. The um, UFC seems to be trying to reinvest into flyweight at this point, so that's nice to see. All right, next up, welterweight Shavkat Rachmanov versus Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. Stephen Thompson pissed off the UFC when he refused to fight Michelle Pereira after Pereira missed weight. You see, got pissed at, at Thompson and decided to throw at him this implacable destroyer of worlds that is Shavkat Rachmanov. Um, look, I like Steven Thompson. He's got a great personality. Seems like a very good guy. Got a great YouTube channel. Gives back to the martial arts community. Again, genuinely seems like a great guy. And if Shavkat hasn't tightened up some of the stuff that Jeff Neal took advantage of, he might be in a little bit of trouble here. Um, he walked into the fire against Jeff Neal a little bit too willingly, a um, little bit too complacent with his head movement or lack thereof, and he got hit by Jeff Neal a fair bit. Turns out, in addition to being very technically sound, very good, ev- you know, good pretty much everywhere, Rachmanov can also take a punch, which just makes him scarier. Um, I like Thompson, but. I think Shavkat Rachmanov is going to wear gold. I really do. He's that good. And this is a guy who's not only undefeated, he's only 29. Um, 17 wins, 17 fights, 17 wins, 17 finishes, 8 knockout, 9 submissions. Again, good everywhere. Um... He's, what, 5-0 and in the UFC? Yeah. And, dude, he's tapped out Jeff Neal and Neil Magny his last two fights. That's not nothing. Um, this guy, one of those guys that... Dude, he beat um, Jun Young Park. Uh, back in like 2000, outside of the UFC, but he beat Jun Young Park. Um, I think it was uh, Kaposa who hipped me to Rachmanov for a couple of his M1 fights. Uh, the last couple, like before he made his UFC debut. This guy's very, very, very good. His sister's actually very good too. <laughs> um, so I, I like Thompson, but. I'm basically picking Rachmanov against the world at this point. <laughs> That's kind of where I am with him. So I'm going with Rachmanov, and I think he probably fights for the belt next year. And there's a good chance he takes it. 
um, our most depressing fight of the evening. If, if, dude, if Stephen Thompson, almost 40, um, getting kind of run over by Rachmanov isn't depressing, and again, that's kind of what I think is going to happen, then Tony Ferguson and Patty Pemblet is just the saddest thing in the world. Man, what do I even say about this? Um... Let me start with Pimblet very briefly. This is a guy who very weirdly, out of nowhere, lost all the favor he had. Right? I mean, all might be a bit of a stretch, but... which After which fight was it that he came out and did the, you know, I lost a friend due to suicide? It was either um, Rodrigo Vargas or Jordan Levitt, because both of those were in London. It was one of those... I want to say it was the Levitt fight. Don't quote. It's one of those two. Um, but yeah, he's won all four of his UFC fights. But we'll get to the problem with that. Uh, but you know, he came out and yeah, did the you know, yeah, I had a bit of fun with you know, I'm gonna say Levitt for the sake of argument. We had a bit of fun and you know we were joking around, but yeah, you know, again, I I lost a I had a friend that you know killed himself recently and. If you feel if you need to talk to somebody, reach out. There are people who care about you. There's, I would so much rather. What's his line? I'd so much rather he be crying on my shoulder right now than me going to his funeral. It's a brilliant line, by the way, and a very true sentiment. Like you can't get much better than that. And then the Jared Gordon fight happens, and he should have lost. He really should have lost that fight, and a lot of his technical issues that I go back and listen to my review of that fight. Like I railed against them. I'm not going to repeat that too much here, but a lot of those technical issues really reared their head and he should have lost. He didn't because reasons. And then he handles that badly. Like he, he handles the fact that he should have lost and people think he should have lost pretty badly. Uh, then he does the podcast with Dana White where he rails against media and like Ariel Hawani in particular. And, then he gets really fat, and then he's out for a while. And just this guy had a lot of momentum and a lot of goodwill, and then it kind of just evaporated. And now he's fighting a guy who is beloved, who man, he's in a no-win scenario here. Like if he loses, losing to Tony Ferguson at this point is damning. It's damning. If he wins, he beat a washed. I think he's. I think even Patty's mentioned this. If he wins, he beats a washed-up old guy that everybody loves. Um, so as far as Tony Ferguson goes, man, I I heard Luke Thomas mention this, and I'm going to repeat it here. Tony Ferguson is a guy who the fight game has done wrong. Now that's not to say, that's not me saying the UFC has done wrong by him. You could argue they have. He's certainly been underpaid. Do you think that guy ever got a million-dollar payday for any one of his fights? And look at the wonderful array of violence he gave us. The fact that he never made a million dollars for one fight breaks my heart. And it should be criminal. 
but there we are. This is a guy who, and when somebody said the fight game did wrong by him, some of that's on him. Like some of that's just bad luck, because the fight game is comprised of all of this. It's matchmaking, it's illness, it's injury, it's timing, it's a bunch of stuff that is just kind of amalgamated into the, the expression of the fight game. And this is a guy who does, was never paid what he was worth. Never. This is a guy who never got to fight for the title. Not the real one. And again, not all of that is his fault. It's not his fault Khabib pulled out of their fight twice. That's not. Like, that's on one of those. Those were on Khabib. It's not really his. One of these things is. It'll be like. He pulled out of that Khabib fight twice as well. One of those, he had the, that lung issue, right? That sucks. But, you know, unfortunate. Then, you know, he blows his knee out tripping over a cable because he was wearing sunglasses indoors. Like, not just indoors. Like, if you are on, if you've never been on, like, a TV set, they keep the set brightly illuminated. And that means everything else, everything behind the cameras is darker. Just by contrast, also by design. So if you're wearing sunglasses while you're being interviewed up there and the lights are on, I can, I'm more forgiving of that, actually, believe it or not. Then he doesn't take them off when he gets kind of off stage. And so he doesn't see the cable and again injures his knee and, oh, then they make that fight again, and a freaking pandemic breaks out. I'm convinced, like, I, I joked about this, but like if they booked that fight again, we'd just get the second coming before it happened. It'd be the day of the fight, and it would happen. To prevent those two from fighting, because we just can't have that fight. But, the guy was just done wrong, man. And then Justin Gagey ruined him. I argued this a little bit before that, first of all, um, I was reminded recently that uh, my my good friend Pat Mullen was on the preview show with me for that event and did, in fact, pick Justin Gagey to beat Tony Ferguson. Because, and because Pat knows what he's doing, uh, yeah, turned out that's what happened. But you know, Gagey ruined him, man. He was all, Ferguson was already slowing down a little bit. Age was catching up to him. And then just a four-and-a-half-round mugging just hit with everything Justin Gagey could throw at him. Uh, it it ruined him, man. It really did. And then didn't he fight Oliveira after that? It wasn't that wasn't that the trajectory? Yeah. So Justin Gagey stops him, and then next fight is Charles Oliveira who destroys his arm. Um. Then he fights Benil Dariush, who messes with his knee. Then Michael Chandler knocks him out with a... Dude, That was that's one of the most brutal knockouts you'll ever see, is that Michael Chandler front kick to Tony Ferguson. Then Nate Diaz chokes him out. Then Bobby Green chokes him out. I just... Dude, he's now tied for the second longest losing streak in UFC history. At six. 
he shares that dubious distinction with man he has both like one of the longest winning streaks in that division's history yeah he is tied with Khabib Nurmagomedov and Islam Makashev for the longest winning streak in the division's history at 12 and he is tied for the second longest losing streak in UFC history. That is a wild change of fortune. BJ Penn holds the record. I think BJ had, what, eight? Need to look this up now. Yeah, because there was the draw, and then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. He was winless in eight. Lost seven in a row. There's a real chance he winds up tied with BJ Penn for the longest losing streak in the promotion's history here. Oh, man. I... Here's the thing about this. Um, Here's the other thing about this. There's a long... Uh, th- there's a YouTube channel. It's not the biggest um, sort of martial arts YouTube channel in the world, but you might have heard of it. And if you haven't, then please go look it up. It's very good. It's called... It's, uh, by, the YouTube channel is called Napoleon Blown Apart. And he did a lengthy retrospective on the rise and fall of The Ultimate Fighter. There were three different episodes, and there's na- and naturally after that you put them together in a supercut. It's like four and a half hours long. Uh, but... because When it gets to the season of The Ultimate Fighter that Tony Ferguson won, I believe it was the 13th, um, Tony's kind of the only guy from that season worth talking about, so he talks about his rise and fall. And he mentioned that he made a very inappropriate comparison, but it's one that's especially poignant to me for a few different reasons. But he mentioned that on Tony's losing streak, there have still been flashes of who he used to be. You know, he he did... Drop Gagey with an uppercut. But we almost kind of give him a pass on that one because, you know, it was a good-ish fight. I say good-ish, a little bit too one-sided to be like an all-time great fight, but good grief, what a performance. And then, you know, you lose to Charles Oliveira. Like, okay, it's Charles Oliveira. Then he doesn't have a tremendous amount of success against Benil Daryush, but Daryush also really wrestles and grapples him. Then he has a good enough first round against Michael Chandler, but can't sustain it. He, you know, drops Bobby Green at one point. He has, again, bits of success against uh, Nate Diaz. Like, there's flashes of that in there for Tony. But, the again, the comparison that uh, Mr. Napoleon gave was... It's a little bit like talking to someone who's suffering from dementia. There's times when that real person makes their way through the fog and through the disease. Those moments of like lucidity and everything. But it's just moments and they get fewer and further between. And that's poignant for me because several people in my life 
um, some close enough to be family and some family have struggled, have dealt with Alzheimer's, dementia, things in that vein. And man, is that rough. But it's an accurate in comparison with what Tony, watching those fights, there's mo, again, man, there's moments. There's moments, but they're just moments. They're just moments. They're not, that's not who he is anymore. I wish, and I wish so much had gone differently in Tony's career. I don't think he ever beats Khabib, for the record. But he should have had that fight. He should have fought for the belt. There's one fight he won. I can't remember if it was after the Pettis or the Cerrone win. Um, let me check. Because it wasn't Kevin Lee. Because he wins the interim title when he fights Kevin Lee, then gets stripped of that because the UFC is willy-nilly with those things. There's a real argument to be made by people smarter than I am that a giant portion of the UFC's outsized market control and control over their fighters is the fact that they own the titles. There's a reason boxing doesn't allow it. That's all I'm saying. But it was after one of those fights when... Because which one was the Pettis fight? Might have been before that, actually. Did he do it? It wasn't after the RDA fight. Because the Pettis fight took place on the same card. It was UC 229. That's um, Khabib and Connor. It might have been after Dos Anjos. Because um, Connor was the lightweight champion at that time. But was not fighting and was doing the Meg, you know, like doing the trying to chase down Floyd Mayweather for a boxing match. He got on the mic after that and said, Hey, McNuggets, defender vacate. He was speaking for the people. Tony Ferguson, champion of the people in 2016. Um, <laughs> yeah, and just again, man, what happened to him? Fight game is cruel. Suffice to say, I am not picking Tony Ferguson to win. I am rooting for him. Nothing would make me happier than him beating Patty Pimblett. But the fight game doesn't give you that. Not just to Tony, but like to the fans. It, you don't get the, You can count on one hand. The number of happy endings. And I I just don't think this is going to be one of them. All right, moving on from that depressing note. Back to welterweight for Vicente Luque and Ian Machado Getty. I am not going to be delving into the stupidity surrounding Ian Gary and his marriage, except to say the following. Ian Gary makes a lot of noise. There's a bit of a truism, as I've thought about it, in... This is true for life in general, but I'm going to limit it to the fight game here in particular. The more noise you make, the more noise comes back at you. Now, there are exceptions to this. There are some people that have on occasion had noise thrown at them that they did not generate. Um, let me give you two examples of this. 
So you want another example of someone who doesn't generate a lot of noise and doesn't generally have a lot of noise come back at them, with one exception. I present to you two different featherweight fighters, both Max Holloway and Jose Aldo. These are not fighters who make a lot of noise. You can find it. That doesn't mean they don't do interviews. It doesn't mean they're standoffish or whatever. It means they don't make a lot of noise. And consequently, a lot of noise generally does not come back at them. It happened to Jose Aldo once when he fought Conor McGregor. And that went badly for him. The noise messed with him in a lot of ways. Look at Max. Max does not make a lot of noise. Doesn't mean he's not competitive. Doesn't mean he doesn't have the fire in him, but doesn't make a lot of noise. Not a lot of noise comes at Max Holloway. Doesn't matter, you know, lightweight, featherweight, fighting anybody. Not a lot of noise comes his way. Because there's not a lot of value in making noise at Max Holloway. Even if you're, you know, and look, Volkanovski kind of the same way. Like, just not a lot of noise. Um, Conor McGregor makes a lot of noise. And it helped him rise, but there's a lot of noise that came back at him, man, and a lot of it is not good. Um, a lot of it. Uh, uh, Khabib's kind of the same way. I don't mean that Khabib is bombastic, because he's not. But when Khabib was fighting, that man was not afraid to make noise. And noise came back at him. Um, it frequently... I think it only got, like, really ugly when he fought Connor. But, dude, he made noise at Poirier. It was respectful noise, but he made noise. And he was... And he, the other thing about the noise Khabib made, he was not... Un, he was as loud after the fight as he was in the build-up. Part of that's his style. But, yeah, noise came back at him, man, and he just, okay, dealt with it. So you make a lot of noise, expect a lot of noise to come back at you. Ian Gary has made a lot of noise. And I don't think he was ready for it to come back at him. And boy, has it. Um, look, some of this has to do with his fight against Neil Magny, because in the build-up to that, Neil Magny made a... Uh, he made a quip about how, you know, I'm a dad now, I'm used to delivering the whoopings. Something to that effect. And Gary got hot about this, like, as he's saying, he beats his kids, and blew that up, and apparently that, now, look, if you're Neil Magny, and you're, you know, potentially about to be in a custody battle over your children, is making a remark like that in the public a good idea? No, it's really not. At the same time, this is clearly not a sincere expression of his lifestyle. But Gary, again, blew it up. And a lot of people who know Neil Magny took umbrage with this. And as... And, again, if Gary were a quieter fighter, a quieter personality... Maybe what happens after that is, you know, nothing. Like, he says, wait, really? You're saying you beat your kids? And then, you know, nothing really comes of it. Eh, but he and his wife are... They make a lot of noise. They throw a lot of themselves out there for public consumption. 
Well, you're inviting a lot when you do that. And in the build-up to this fight, and especially because the MMA media ecosystem is fueled by such, I apologize for my profanity, pointless bullshit, everyone blew this up. Everyone blew up that, oh, wait, what do you mean? I'm not going to go into it here because I don't care. I don't, I, I don't care. I so much don't care. I, what I know is at best polemic talking points from other people. But I know it's sucked up a lot of oxygen. Congratulations, Ian Gary. You made a lot of noise. A lot of noise is coming back at you. And he has not seemed to be handling that very well. Dude's been kicked out of two different gyms. And... You don't want a lot of noise coming your way. Don't make a lot of noise to begin with, man. And there's a fine line to walk with that because you got to be the squeaky wheel to get the grease. The UFC likes their fighters louder, generally speaking. But my cautionary tale to everybody, you make a lot of noise, a lot of noise comes back at you. So, there, dude, there's going to be a press conference for this thing this po- at some point this week, and this guy is going to get savaged. Everybody else on that podium is gonna throw is gonna throw nuclear warheads at Ian Gary, and he might still win this fight. He's fighting Vicente Luque, which is not an easy fight. Luque had that scare with a brain bleed not too long ago when he lost to Jeff Neal. Got a pretty good win when he came back to action, beating Rafael dos Anjos. This is a tough fight. Even under the best of circumstances, this is, a tough, this is a tough fight for Gary. But Luke is also a little bit hittable, and Gary's pretty good at hitting people. Gary's been hurt in the past. He seems to have closed a little bit of that, but... I don't know. This is designed to get Gary a win over a guy who's been very good for a very long time, and the UFC is kind of... My hunch is the UFC sees Luke as past his expiration date. And that may be true. I think he's on the downside of things. But he might also have enough left to kind of spoil their next golden boy. So, tough fight. Tough fight for Gary. I think I'm still going to lean towards him. But Luke very well might have something for him. And that's your main card. Really good main card. Man, any one... Okay. Most of those could main event a fight night. I don't think you could main event with Ferguson and Pimblett at this point. You'd be stretching to main event with Luke and Gary. But Thompson and Rachmanov could easily main event a fight night. Easily. Anyway, prelims. Because this is go. <laughs> We're going long, people. You already know how much longer this is than I do. <laughs> um... Prelims, featherweight, Josh Emmett was supposed to fight Giga Chikadze, and boy was I looking forward to that. Unfortunately, Giga Chikadze tore his groin. Uh, he actually put the video out there. It happened in sparring. He was just throwing a kick. It happens, man. Um, on short notice, in steps Bryce Mitchell. I applaud the cojones on Bryce Mitchell. 
he had a decent enough get-well win over Dan Ige after Ilya Teporia bludgeoned and choked him out. On short notice, this is a tough fight for him. Josh Emmett is hard to take down, and if Bryce Mitchell can't take you down, a lot of his game suffers. Emmett is a tank. He is one of the hardest punchers that division has ever seen consistently. I think he has the best knockdown rate in featherweight history. He's knocked everybody down he's fought. Possibly with the exception of Teporia. Yeah, he's tied with Jeremy Stevens for the most knockdowns in division history at 11. Now, he's on a two-fight losing streak, and frankly, I thought he lost the cater fight. He gave Yair Rodriguez problems before he got caught in that triangle joke, and then Teporia was just, you know, Ilya Teporia. I would have favored Giga. Not by a lot, but I would have favored Giga. I am on short notice. If they had a full camp, I think Bryce might surprise some people. On short notice, I gotta go with Emmett here. Um, again, not by the biggest of margins. Emmett needs a win pretty badly, given the sort of rough patch he's in. But how old is he? He's 38. Yeah, the age is a problem. Mitchell only 29. But... It's just, it's, even under ideal circumstances, this is a tough matchup for Mitchell. On short notice, I feel okay going with Emmett. Um, women's bantamweight, probably a number one contender fight. God help us. Irine Aldana and Carol Hossa. Aldana coming off one of the most bafflingly bad performances in UFC championship history. Lost a unanimous decision to Amanda Nunes. Um, 50-44, 50-44, and 50-43. I think it was 50-42, personally. Like, just... Terrible performance from, um, from Aldana in that fight. Terrible. Um, she's trying to get right. Um, Hosa... Split win over Yana Santos. Lost to Norma Dumont before that. I'm gonna go with Aldana. But... Boy, does she need to hit the reset button after doing nothing to Amanda Nunes. I mean, Nunes throwing one of the, having one of the more dominant decision wins you'll see, and then retiring double champion while Juliana Pena is out there going, please remember that I exist. Now getting a... Juliana Pena and Raquel Pennington for that vacant belt. They may as well close that division. What a joke. Um, bantamweight, speaking of guys who badly need a win, Cody Garbrandt and Brian Kelleher. This might be the last stand of all of no love. So he, he got a win when he came back to bantamweight against Trevin Jones. Um, his flyweight debut went badly when Kai Carter-France stopped him in the first round. I mean, he is two and five in his last seven. Now... In fairness, TJ Dillashaw twice, and then Pedro Munoz. Tough stretch. This feels like another kind of get-right fight for Garbrandt. They're slowly rebuilding him. Brian Kelleher on a two-fight losing streak to Umar Nurmagomedov and Mario Bautista. I don't know how good Kelleher is at bantamweight. 
he's struggled in that weight class. He's he's flirted there. He he's bounced around a little bit between featherweight and bantamweight. Um, Umar, dude, Umar beat the crap out of him, but Umar might also be champion in the near future, depending on how bad his shoulder injury is. Mario Bautista, I do not hold that same opinion of. I'm going with Garbrandt here. They're, again, they're still kind of building him back up, but he's on thin ice. Dude, if he loses to Kelleher, that, that would be disastrous for him. Not because Kelleher is a scrub, but because of where they like where the perception of Garbrandt is versus what would have happened to him his last handful of fights. That'd be real bad. Uh, women's flyweight, Casey O'Neill and Ariane Lipsky. Pretty easy O'Neill pick here. Coming off her first loss when she ran into Jennifer Maya. But Lipsky is... Almost remarkably unremarkable. Her UFC record is what? An even? Is she even? Is she 5-5? Five and five? She is. Um, on a two-fight winning streak... But I'm going with O'Neal here. That that seems pretty safe. On the earlier prelims, light heavyweight, Alonzo Menafield and uh, Dustin Jacoby. I'm okay going with Jacoby here. Coming off the dude, when he beat Kennedy uh, Zuchukwu. Pretty good win. I mean, his, he, I thought he beat Khalil Roundtree. Didn't think he beat Azamat Merzikana, but I thought he beat Khalil Roundtree. Um, Menafield has done okay for himself recently. Um, he had a rough stretch for a minute or two, but hasn't lost in his last four fights. Stopped um, Oscar Mozart, stopped Misha Sirkinov, had a draw with Jimmy Crute, then beat him in the rematch. I'm going to lean towards Jacoby here, but if Menafield's really figured himself out, he can win this. Flyweight, Tiger Ulanbekov and Cody Durden. Um, Durden losses in the UFC to Jimmy Flick and Mohamed Makayev. Four-fight winning streak. J.P. Bays, Carlos Mata, Charles Johnson, and Jake Hadley. So, a lot of wrestling. Um, Ulan Bekov only lost in the UFC to Tim Elliott. Coming off a win over Nate Maness. Um... Close one. My hunch is Durden's probably the favorite, but I'm going to lean towards Ulan Bekov. I think Durden's style of wrestling is just... Ulan Bekov is probably going to be ready for that. Let me check the odds just for the sake of it. Um, and are these... Let me see if I can find this one. So, here are the other fights, just out of curiosity. Edwards favored over Covington. Garbrandt favored over Kelleher. O'Neill over Lipsky. Aldana over Hossa. Mitchell's the favorite over Emmett. Interesting. Gary favored over Luque. Pemblet a pretty big favorite over Ferguson. Pantoja slight favorite over Royval. Rachmanov, the biggest favorite on the card at the moment, over Thompson. That tracks. Um, yeah, this has Ulanbekov as a slight favorite. Okay, I can see that. Uh, I can see that. Um, Jacoby's favorite over Menafield, almost two, a little over two to one. That's interesting. 
Dude, if I can get two to one on Menafield to win that fight, that that might be that might be a little bit tempting. Sorry, moving on. Um, Andre Feely and Lucas Almeida. Man, Feely's all over the place. He had moments against Nathaniel Wood, but he's been there forever. It might just be time for him to... It's almost time for him to pack it in. He's the slight favorite here. Let me double-check Almeida. Um, because Almeida's been with the UFC for a minute or two. He is 14-2. and two. Only 1-1 one one in the UFC. Beat Michael Trezano and then lost to Pat Sabatini. Yeah, I'm going to go with Feely. I, I think Feely's good enough to avoid the losing streak here, but, dude, that guy's just been up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. Um, all right. And let's see. Next, heavyweights. Martin Bidet and Shamil Gaziev. Um, Bidet's actually had a few pretty good fights in the UFC. He's 13-1, and 4-0 in the UFC. Only loss was in his second fight ever to Juan Espino. So, 13-fight winning streak wins in the UFC over Chris Barnett, Lucas Breschke, Jake Collier, and Josh Parisian. Gaziev, I want to say, is making his debut. Gaziev fighting out of Bahrain. Is he the first Bahrainian? He might be. Um, One is contender series fight. Yeah, undefeated. Um, sorry, eleven and zero. Um, mm. Has wins. Beat anybody I know. Beat Darko Stojic. It's the only name I recognize. Um, maybe Corn. Do I know Kirill Kornilov? I think I know another Kirill. I might have seen that guy fight. Um, that's actually a pretty tough... I'm going to go with Bidet. Um, but... That might be a little bit closer than, you know, most people are willing to... Yeah, the odds are relatively close. So, going with Bidet, but... I'm not going to sleep entirely on Gaziev. And then kicking everything off, a pretty good welterweight fight. Randy Brown and Muslim Salikov. Um, Brown. Uh, he's been hard to beat, man. Lost to Michael Graves, lost to Bilal Muhammad, lost to Nico Price, lost to Vicente Luque, and lost to Jack, uh, Jack Della Maddalena. Those are all... Okay, not Michael Graves. Everyone after Michael Graves at least is, like, winning in the UFC. Coming off a win over Wellington Terman. My gut is saying Salikov. Your Salikov lost to Nicholas Dalby his last time out. But I think Salikov probably still has enough to give Randy Brown problems. Brown's length might be an issue for him, though, but... Um, Brown, a pretty decent favorite, actually. I'm still going with Salikov. But Brown a near three to one favorite. Interesting. I mean, again, I've never said uh, I've never advised picking betting based on my picks here, so please don't. But that's the event. 
MMAZone400mania.com this Saturday. I will be covering it start to finish, as I usually do. All right. Oh, jeez. About two hours. Um, I'll try to be quick through my news items here. Because um, I don't have too many of them. So, let's start with my disappointment with the California State Athletic Commission. Um, they had a meeting and approved at least, they approved bare-knuckle boxing, which some interesting data came out about this, because you had to come before, the, you had to come basically before them and like, present data and answer their questions. Uh, so, Eric McGracken on Twitter broke down some of this. Um, so, some interesting um medical data we've had enough bkfc events and some other like bare knuckle stuff to have a good enough sample size so interestingly enough bare knuckle fighters actually suffer fewer hand injuries than either mma or boxing i imagine if our sample size had been limited to like the first few bare knuckle events um that data would have been skewed the other direction but people figured out you have to be very careful punching bare knuckle um they do have wraps but um that's more supporting the wrist you have to be careful how you punch because otherwise you will break your hand um there's a real art to that so people are more careful with their punches in bare knuckle fighting and so they don't break their hands as much not surprising the gloves the gloves are designed more to weaponize your fist than to protect it um, well, yeah, no, that, that's that's more accurate. It's not that they don't protect it, but the fundamental design is to allow you to hit harder. Is it safer than hitting harder without anything? Yes. Is it designed for maximum safety when punching? No. It's designed for the space between adequate protection and maximizing damage. And that's true for boxing, kickboxing, Muay Thai, MMA, or you know, four ounce Muay Thai, whatever. That like that's the glove design kind of wants to live in that space. It lets you punch harder, and it does lead, and because you are punching harder, more hand breaks. Um, the interesting thing for me was not that. Um, that actually doesn't surprise me. The more people have figured some stuff out about bare knuckle, um, there was actually a lower rate of concussions in bare knuckle than boxing or MMA. Boxing and MMA are about comparable. I remember, I've been around long enough to remember when they, people were doing the, no, you, you take less head trauma in MMA than boxing because you don't do the standing eight count and the defense is, no, it's about the same. Shut up. Um, you actually get, but apparently there's less like full-blown concussions in bare knuckle. Little bit surprising to me. Um, maybe it shouldn't have been, but you're not getting hit as hard as often. So maybe it shouldn't be as surprising. Um, What you do get more of in bare knuckle, to the surprise of no one, a lot more lacerations. Um, The instances of cuts in bare knuckle are, again, to the shock of no one, wildly higher than MMA or boxing. But again, this is part of like safety and medical data that they presented and Few, few bits of interesting stuff. You can go look up the whole thing if you're curious. Um, that doesn't disappoint me. I think that's not unreasonable. What did disappoint me is the California State Athletic Commission approving one slap fight. There's going to be a power slap event there.
I am... I am struggling to fully articulate my disgust with this. So let me start with the following. One, I have serious questions about the ethics of slap fighting. It's not a martial art. Let me start here. Which actually calls into serious question whether or not the California State Athletic Commission can legally sanction it. They are allowed, by law, to sanction boxing, kickboxing, and martial arts. Slap fighting is not a martial art. It is not. It is not a discipline of fighting. By any stretch of the imagination, a discipline of fighting, an art of war, has to involve defense. It has to involve skill. Slap fighting is not that. There is no art. There is no skill. Dana White can lie through his teeth about the technique of how you palm strike instead of slap. Sure. Every... Go to a strip mall karate school of any flavor of karate or taekwondo... If that's not a completely fraudulent school, anyone there with a blue belt or higher, I'll forgive the like white, yellow, and orange guys. And some of that might change depending on how you hand out belts. I forget how all the Taekwondo... Like, look, my system does white, yellow, orange, purple, blue, green, brown, black. That's the system. That, that's the ranking. Jiu-Jitsu does, for adults, um, white, blue, purple, brown, black, possibly red. If you small enough contingent that it doesn't actually matter, but that exists. Others do it differently. Sometimes it's just swapping blue and purple. Sometimes green is in different locations. Some people put a red belt between brown and black. Some people put a red between before you get brown. It, again, it's just... It, know the system so a lot anyone who is above the beginner stages of that martial art if the system in school is not fraudulent will know how to hit throw a palm strike instead of a slap any of them whether they do it in sparring or not well who knows but the theory they should at least be able to hit a heavy bag appropriately with a palm strike from any direction that's all you're doing. All you're doing is sitting... This is not a demonstration of skill. It is a demonstration of who can take more brain damage before they fall over. Not a martial art. Not a martial art. So I would argue they can't even legally sanction it by their own definition. But I'm not the lawyer. I didn't make the ruling. I'm not a, or a judge. No one's going to challenge this. Which leads me to the, again, the serious ethical concerns around the sanctioning of this to begin with. This is a spectacle. Nothing more. We're not that far removed from feeding people to animals. You might think I'm being, I'm exaggerating here, okay? You might be saying, like, seriously, you're likening this to a public execution wherein Christians are fed to lions in the Roman Colosseum. I'm saying, when you start saying, this is okay... We're not as far removed as you think 
from horrifying spectacle. That's all I'm saying. So, don't like it. Don't like the direction it indicates things are going. And allow me to put forth the following to the Nevada State Athletic Commission, the California State Athletic Commission, to any governing body. I'll I'll exempt Colorado from this for a second for a reason I'll get into. To all of you hypocrites, to all of you, again, you hypocrites, you moral cowards, every single one of you enjoying your position appointed by the governor to this cushy job where you barely do it to begin with. Every one of you who is a glorified member of the Chamber of Commerce or the Board of Tourism. That's what you are. You are not caring about the human lives you are endangering with this bullshit. To every one of you, every one of you, sanction the universal rules of mixed martial arts if we're going to do this. If you are going to have the gall to stand there and tell me that these two idiots that you pulled off the street fighting for a ham sandwich doing nothing but standing across a table hitting each other in the head as hard as they can until one of them falls over where you are not allowed by the rules of of this spectacle to engage in defense... You have zero, and I mean zero, ground to stand on for not allowing 12 to 6 elbows and knees to the head of a downed opponent, or soccer kicks for that matter. But you won't sanction that, will you? Why? Because you're cowards and hypocrites who want to stay in the UFC's good graces. That's all you're doing. And anyone with a sl- the slightest degree of critical thinking skills sees your naked hypocrisy and greed for what it is. Shame on every single one of you pathetic bureaucrats. Every one of you. And you know what? Last thing about this. To the existence of power slap and slap fighting in general. You craven promoters paying the least amount every promoter tries to pay the least amount possible i'm doubly pissed off at you people because you don't allow these men and women to defend themselves you don't allow it you pay nothing barely a down payment on a car a used car in this economy You don't allow them to defend themselves. You ruin their quality of life. Part of your medical presentation for this, by the way, I read this, is the theoretical argument that there's no consensus around what concussion, about the linkage between concussions and CTE. This is what we're standing on now? Really? You don't even generate fans with this. You don't have fans. You know what SLAP does? No one watches this crap. No one watched your stupid reality series on TBS. That's why they canceled you. They would have canceled you after three episodes if they could have when you shed 65% of your total audience. Dude, you didn't even get a bump for your finals. All you did was shed viewers. Because all you can do, Dana, is try to rehash the past. Like, hey, a reality series did well after pro wrestling, right? 
when we had the Ultimate Fighter after WWE Raw, let's put Power Slap on after AEW. Idiot. So now you're airing on Rumble. <laughs> Which is funny. Look, man, I'm not here to dump on Rumble in the general sense. YouTube needs a competitor. I wish it was Rumble. I wish it was anything. YouTube's monopolistic power over the whatever the... You know what YouTube is? You know what Google is? You know what these people really are? And I mean this. They're not content hosting websites. They're advertisers. They're advertising space. What was it? Like two or three years ago, Amazon, freaking Amazon, made more money selling advertisement space on their website than by actually selling stuff. Billboards may be going down in most areas of the country. Not mine. But boy, are they just plastered all over the internet. Get a good ad blocker, people, I beg of you. It's a, it's hilarious to watch. But that that's what YouTube is, basically, at this point. It's ad space. They're, ad, they're an advertising company that just throws crap in front of content provided by other people desperate to get pennies for what you leeches make off of ads. Anyway, but they need a competitor. I wish it was Rumble. It's not. But you're, you're airing your crap on Rumble. No one's watching. You have your stupid little pay-per-views. No one's buying. You know why they keep throwing money at this? Because it blows up on TikTok. Because the ADD-riddled algorithm section that just doom-scrolls through these 20-second clips. If do 20 seconds is too long for some of these will come across on occasion, hey, watch this guy slap this other guy so hard he falls over and into convulsions. And you go, huh, that's funny, next. But because you actually watch the entire, like, six-second clip, hey, look at all the views we're getting on TikTok or YouTube Shorts or Facebook Reels or whatever stupid iteration of this we have. You don't actually have fans. You know what you have? You have rubberneckers. If you're not familiar with that term, I picked it up from my grandfather, who was a member of the California Highway Patrol for like 20-some-odd years. Rubberneckers are all those people who slow down and turn to look at car crash, at the wreckage on the side of the freeway, before they actually get back up to proper speed and move on. Like, that's, that's who watches this. They don't care about the people. They don't care. They look at a car crash for 10 seconds and move on and don't care anymore. You don't have fans. You have the morbidly curious. That's all you've got. And if that's what we're trying to monetize in this day and age, I weep for the few. Dude, I'm I make no I do not preach here, but I make no I do not hide the fact that I'm a religious person. I know things are going to get worse before they get better, but good grief, we're doing this. Like, you may as well have guys stand across from each other and kick each other in the nuts until they fall over. Why are we not doing Rochambeau professionally? Someone's going to try it. I'm sure Fight Circus has done it. Ugh. Fight Circus is more legitimate than Power Slap, and Fight Circus does, like, two-on-one, or... They had a phone booth fight. They actually got, like, an old phone booth, put two people in it, and said fight. They've done car jujitsu, which is just jujitsu in a car, because of weird contraptions that you can use in space and whatnot. That's more legitimate than power slap. Yet here we are, 
one of the, in theory, better commissions in the United States, the California State Athletic Commission, has said, sure, we'll sanction one of these things because we don't want to piss off the UFC. And because we don't want to piss off the UFC, we won't sanction other versions of the MMA rules, even though they are less damaging and provide a a more serious moral and ethical framework for their existence than two people standing across a table from each other, taking turns, hitting each other in the head as hard as they can, where defense is disallowed. You want to know why people are falling away from the UFC? I'm going to talk about this when I talk about 2023 in review. But a lot of people have stopped watching because they have seen too much how the sausage is made. And they have seen too much of this. Dana White's counter of like, hey, if you don't like it, don't watch. Guy, no one's watching. And you still have the UFC commentary team, you've got poor John Anik or John Gooden or Brendan Fitzgerald 18 times in your six-hour broadcast going, hey, power slap, here's an ad read. Nobody wants to watch it. You won't stop talking about it. You won't stop putting it on the UFC website. You won't stop sending emails to people like me about it. And you won't stop putting it on the official official UFC Twitter feed because nobody's following the power slap one. We don't want to watch it. You are cramming it down our throats and saying, if you don't want it, don't watch. Screw you. I don't need your bald-faced hypocrisy, all of you. That's what's, That really has gotten under my skin, clearly. I am not the only one, and I have had a more temperate reaction to this, all things considered. Do, part of the reason they don't put that on the official UFC Twitter account anymore, they used to do it a lot more. They don't do it as much now. They lost followers by the millions because they didn't want to see it. Okay. Sorry. That was my cathartic soapbox rant for the evening. (laughs) I apologize if I blew out any of your speakers. I hope I didn't. All right. Last thing. This is somewhat related to that. So a lot of the court documents, part of the um, one of the things that was ordered by the judge more uh, in the ongoing lawsuit, the uh, Lee et al. versus Zufa lawsuit was in the last bit where the judge set a trial date, denied one of the UFC's, one of the claims, he also ordered the unsealing of the documents. There's a bunch of stuff that had been seen by the lawyers, by the judge, by the experts, but it's it was sealed, so only they had seen it, and he ordered the unsealing of a lot of it. Uh, again, there's a few things that are redacted for privacy's sake, but... He unsealed a lot of it, and the UFC didn't want this getting, the lawyers didn't want this getting out, and it became obvious why. Um, we know a lot more about the specific numbers of payouts. We now have the attitudes of a lot of the people involved, which are not good. And I've seen a lot of people refer to this trial that the judge has now, the judge set a start date for this in um, April, I think. It was March or April, one of the two. Um, but I've seen a lot of people refer to assume this is going to be a jury trial. If they're assuming that, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say they have seen something about how the judge wants this to go about that I haven't. Antitrust stuff is, again, it's frequently bench trials. Not always, but frequently. 
Um, if this one is going to be a jury trial, then a lot of the stuff here is pretty damning. Um, there is an attitude very clearly present. We see a lot of stuff that Joe Silva did, why he was so hated. Um, here's the biggest thing that they're going to run into. A few of the things are going to come up. One, there's an anti-competitive sentiment. You, know, you What does that mean, you might be asking? They do a lot of stuff to deliberately stop another promotion from coming up. They are trying to create a non-competitive marketplace. That's a problem legally. Here's the other thing. Some of what they do business-wise and contract structures and whatnot, if you... Here's the reality. Part of the part of the question is, did you become a monopoly? They're a monopsony technically, but I'm going to say monopoly for the ease of conversation. Did you attain a market monopoly illegally, which you can do? I don't believe the UFC did. However, once you attain a certain amount of market power, what you're allowed to do changes. By way of example. If I work for an accounting firm, I'm not an accountant, but just if I work for a firm and I want to renegotiate my contract and I say, you're paying me $55,000 a year, I would like to make $100,000. Here's my reasoning. If the response from the firm is, screw you, we'll give you $55,000 and we'll double your workload. That's not actually illegal. It's insulting and stupid and exploitative, but I am allowed to say thanks, no thanks, and leave and find another accounting firm of similar market, of like similar status, and go, hey, I was making 55, I wanted to make 100, and if they go, we'll give you 65 and will have a better health plan. Or if I'm, or again, like if I'm negotiating with my previous firm and I say I've got an offer from this one that's $65,000. The fact that another another firm exists that can make a comparable counteroffer means that if this other firm wants to go screw you, we gave you an offer and we're not budging, it's not illegal. It's not great business, but it's within their rights and it doesn't violate any rules. If you are the only, if you were this the only accounting firm of any note in the country, suddenly they can't do that anymore because it is expressly uncompetitive. It is expressly abusing their market share. Now this isn't a problem in the in the accounting world or a lot of other spaces. It's not even a problem like the far, like horribly like corrupt and abusive other you know play uh, for uh, market spaces like pharmaceutical companies or whatever because again there's alternatives to the individual entities the UFC has outsized market share they know it 
using that to abuse your workforce and abusing your market position is illegal if you're a monopoly. That's going to be a problem for them. The other problem they're going to have, and this is perceptual, back in ye old golden days, 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008, part of the logic behind fighters being paid relatively poorly was we're not making a tremendous amount of money. Well, turns out, we know what we, courtesy of this lawsuit, actually this would have been a little bit further along, but like we know what the executives, in this case it would be like Dana White and the Fertitas, we know what they paid themselves versus what they paid the fighters. Like there's a four-year period in here in, during this lawsuit, I forget the exact years, where the executives of so Dana White and the Fertitas pay themselves like over this period like 1.2, 1.4 billion dollars, and they take out loans to do this, while the fighters in that same period of time made like all of them like 250 million. You're paying I. I am not actually opposed to, as a general rule, the UFC brass, the Zufa brass, Dana White and the Fertitas, getting rich off of this endeavor. I'm not opposed to that. They put a lot of money into this. Like, they sunk tens of millions of dollars into saving the UFC. And Dana White, for a long time, worked incredibly hard. That man was on a plane every week. He was talking to any media outlet. He was talking with regulators trying to get the the sport into different states, especially New York. And just, he worked, he took years off his life working. I don't have a problem saying that. And I don't have a problem with him making a lot of money off of that. I really don't. I do have a problem with... The UFC and the, again, with the executives making themselves very rich while keeping the fighters very poor. That I have a problem with. And when you're paying yourself 3x what you should be, what the you are paying the fighters... That's a problem. That I have a problem with. And at this point, I heard I think it was John Nash make this point. If, if the UFC is correct in their self-assessment that what's being sold is that people are buying the UFC brand, not the fighters, then the following should be true. If what they're saying, if that's true, the following should be true. If that's true, then it must also be true that an average fight night with unranked competitors top to bottom is more successful and draws more money than a non-UFC event with like John Jones and Francis Ngannou as your main event. If what the UFC is saying about themselves is true, then any UFC event 
no matter the talent level and no matter who's on it, will be more successful than any event with any other organization featuring any other fighters. Now, this is self-evidently not true. The UFC simply has a majority of the best fighters, and this feeds into the perception. But if you were to take a standard UFC fight night, main event it with unranked guys and have nothing else but like con- but like contender series alums making their debuts, put it against the like, same day, have networks compete over which one would you rather air, this UFC event or John Jones versus Francis Ngannou? You tell me, how does that go? Again, answer should be self-evident. But there's a lot of so there's a lot of court documents that have been unsealed. Follow people who study this stuff more explicitly than I do. Bloody Elbow has a couple of great articles up there right now. I encourage you to go read them. Um, yeah, so there's a lot there's a lot of stuff that I might come across this last year as anti-UFC and. I hope I have given them their flowers when they've deserved it. I hope you've seen that. And really, my gripe is on the administrative side of things. I still like the sport. I think I still like the UFC as a general rule. But part of the reason I do this, and one of the things I hope is clear, is that I speak the truth. I try to speak the truth. And that means when the UFC does something I like and I think is good, I give them their flowers. When there are issues, I I say that there are issues. So, all right. I got a little bit more heated there than I expected. (laughs) Again, I apologize if Andy Tanneman might have been wearing headphones. All right, um, that's all I've got for news items. So let me check Twitter, see if anything crazy is broken. If not, we will do plugs and get out of here. All right, nope, so plugs. Um, you know what, before I do this, very briefly, longer episode this week. I thank you all for listening. <laughs> I always do it at the start of an episode, but because I do these basically unedited, I occasionally will go through. Unless I have a major production issue, I don't edit these. Um, and it's just kind of extemporaneous off the top of my head, so I never know how long they're going to go, and... Bless you all, and thank you for listening. Uh, again, especially for some of these longer ones. So, I know some of you would prefer shorter content, and uh, were my life a little different, maybe I would, I would do like three short, like three forty-minute shows a week. It's like, hey, here's a review, here's a preview, maybe here's a news one, or I might splash that into two. Do review and news and like middle of the week preview and news. I don't know. It it's crossed my mind on occasion, but at the moment, eh, I don't. For a variety of reasons, but maybe more in the future. We'll see. The year's coming to a close. Thank you all very much for listening. My plugs. Um, Monday, Monday, Monday. Myself and Mark Radulich will be on Damn You Hollywood. We will review. Napoleon, the latest Ridley Scott movie, which I have not heard especially great things about, for whatever it's worth, so be on the lookout for that. 
Uh, last week, myself and Mark got together and we reviewed Godzilla Minus One. Great movie. Please see it if you can. Uh, if you want my thoughts on movies and other stuff on occasion, tune in to the W2M Network. Again, I do Damn You Hollywood there pretty much every week. Um, yeah. So, Napoleon this week, um, Wonka the week after. <laughs> then Aquaman. <laughs> the last movie, Napoleon, Wonka, Aquaman. What has happened? What has happened to the movies? I know what's happened. The Hollywood machine is what the Hollywood machine is. But, yeah, again, if you're interested, that's where we'll be. Monday evening, then the last two are on Tuesday evening, so tune in. Thank you very much if you're interested in that. That's it for me this week. Thank you again. Next week, um, last show of the year? This week will be the 17th. Yeah, I'm not doing one Christmas Eve. Sorry, guys. Will I do one New Year's Eve? I might do one New Year's Eve. What's the UFC? Hang on, I said I would do this, so let me quick check the UFC's schedule. So, they're not having an event until the 13th. So, does that mean I wait until the 7th? Considering it's Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve on Sundays. Yeah, I think I might. So, next week, last show of the year, then we will be back on the 7th with my 2023 year in review and a preview of... What's the UFC getting up to? Um, Magomed Ankalaev and Johnny Walker 2. Jim Miller's on that card. Boy, I am going to be pissed if we are risking Jim Miller at UFC 300 for this. We probably won't. That's not... We don't have... UFC 300 is going to be April. That should be enough time for Jim Miller to turn around. If it's not, I'm going to be pissed. So, anyway. That's for the future. Immediate future next week. Review of UFC 296. And that'll close out the year. So, thank you all very much. See you next week. And until then... Stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.